right. Well, tonight we are finishing up the last verse of chapter 2, getting into chapter 3 of Titus. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles. And after setting the standard for personal Christian character and behavior for all, whether young or old men or old or young women or slave or free, uh, Paul continued by reminding Titus of the reason we're to live such separate lives. And what I mean by separate lives is that Christians do not resemble or react, behave like, or respond like the rest of mankind to the same circumstances that confront everyone. Because the same circumstances that confront the unbelieving world confront uh, Christians as well. But we respond differently. We Christians are separated out by virtue of our newness in Christ. Um, all that we do is now motivated by and empowered by our salvation. And we remain here on the earth in a lifelong training program. We're in a perpetual boot camp um, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is chapter 2, verse 12. So we're waiting for our blessed hope. We are waiting for Christ to ret return, and we've just sung about that in those, in those songs we sang tonight. Not waiting in our houses, uh, looking out the window at the sky, but living lives of righteousness before a watching world. Failing sometimes, being corrected, improving, growing in holiness, um, all while knowing this is not our home, and uh, we have Christ our hope who is coming back for us. And that's why Jesus came, right, to redeem us, and to purify us for himself, and he, he uses our everyday lives to do his work in us. And Paul has given a lot of instruction, a lot of commands for Christian conduct here, and as we move into chapter 3, he continues with more of the same, really. But we should notice that he pauses between all this instruction that he started in chapter 2, and he, he pauses there to remind Titus that he's called to be an uncompromising leader, a leader who does not shrink back at the scoffing and disobedience and rebellion that will come from professing Christians. We expect it from the world, but it comes from within the church as well. And that's where we'll begin tonight, at, at Paul's charge to Titus as a servant leader in the church. And listen for this charge to Titus in verse 15 of chapter 2 um, as I read, and then uh, for the additional commands that follow. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 15, and then move into chapter 3. I'm going to go all the way through verse 7 in chapter 3. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's open in a word of prayer tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for an opportunity this evening to gather together and to sing songs of praise to you and sing songs that teach us and remind us of the truths of salvation, that Christ is our hope. Um, Lord, we are so grateful. I praise you, Lord, for an opportunity to open your word and to be taught by it and be reminded of things that we need to be reminded of. And we'll give you praise for it, Lord. May you be glorified in our daily lives as you train us and conform us into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So we see that um, verse 15, chapter 2, is specific to Titus because he's the leader. And he is the one charged with teaching these things and with appointing other leaders who will believe and teach these things. It is specific to Titus in that time, in that place, but it is the charge to all who will be pastors, elders within Christ's church. It's a high and difficult calling, but mandatory. And I think two things are important to realize before we talk about what Paul wrote here to Titus. And the first thing is that pastors would be I think we can see here that pastors would be tempted not to be strong in their preaching and teaching because it's not a pleasant task to be the one bringing the truth to bear on people's sins. Um, Holding people to these standards would perhaps be seen as rigid or legalistic. Um, And you can go on with other ways of describing that. And the second thing is that Paul knew that as he's writing these things to Titus that sinful people would rebel against the truth and would, because of sin, need to be corrected. This was Paul's way of making it clear that the job of the pastor elder is to play a role in steering wayward Christians back into alignment with true Christian values and standards, with biblical standards. And so I think we have to understand that, first of all, when we see what he's charging Titus with here at the end of chapter 2, that there's a reason he has to charge him with it, because the reality is people are sinful. People are going to rebel. And so what do you do in the midst of that? And Paul charged Titus with four responsibilities here, or necessary mandates for the proper functioning of the leadership in the church in verse 15. And that is that he's to declare and exhort and rebuke and let no one disregard him. As we look at each of these things that Titus is to do, we also recognize that Paul says he's to do them with all authority. He says there in the text, these are not just suggestions for Titus to maybe do. They are commands for him to do as the leader in the church. And thereby, as he appoints elders in all the churches, that's why, why Paul has left them in Crete. If you remember from the beginning of this, he would be telling them the same thing. They would need to do these things with all authority. Um, 
And on top of that, the people are to receive what he says as authoritative. So as he does these things with all authority, the people in the church are to receive them as such. They do not have the option of thinking that Titus's words have no weight as he brings the word of God to bear. They have the weight, the things that Titus will say according to the scriptures have all the weight and authority from the word of God. So the word Paul uses for authority here, it refers to something uh, in its proper order or place. Okay, When Jesus was confronted in the synagogue with the man with the unclean spirit who, who knew who Jesus was, right, calls him out and says, we know who you are. And Jesus commanded him to come out of the man, and he did come out of the man, convulsing him. And we can see the use of the verb form of this same word when those who witnessed this spoke about what Jesus had just done. Okay, in Mark 1, 27, it says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And here the word is translated commands. See, the word in that passage there for authority is a different word, but attached to it is this word commands. What he did there was command, um, but it is in conjunction with the normal word for authority. So he's commanded with authority, and, and uh, the people recognize that. And we see the same thing when Jesus calms the storm. In Luke 8, 25, he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Again, talking about that command there, uh, this word is translated as commands in, in different translations and here, and you can see that it carries authority with it. He couldn't command the storm to calm if he had no authority. In both instances, the people recognize this. They see it and they're marveled at it. There is, there is authority in this command. It's as if it came from some other source, which it did, right? It comes from God. So in our text, this is the way in which Titus is to communicate with the people. When he declares and rebukes and exhorts, it is with all authority. The people should um, and must listen because this would not be just the words of Titus if he rebuked them. It would be coming from the word of God. Paul writes to him in verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, what things? He says, declare these things. Well, it's, it's all the things in chapter 2 uh, for older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and slaves. All the things he said about how they are to interact with each other and with other people. Um, also, all the truths about how God is sanctifying his people until Christ returns. You know, right before verse 15, we had that whole section where he talked about Christ's coming. He talked about how our salvation and, and the fact that we're left here is training us to renounce ungodliness. And so here he says, declare these things. That's what he's talking about, those things. He says, declaring, or as some translations have it, he, it just says speak, right? Speak these things. This is the responsibility of the pastor um, to preach, to reveal, to open up the word of God, to make it clear. 
This is a, this is a call to, to him to do this. The meaning here is also that of doing this, speaking, speaking the word of God in an ongoing sense. It's not just a one-time thing. This is continuously. Not only is, is it telling the pastor or elder that you need to continu- t- continuously be doing this, but it's informative in that we, the people sitting out here, we need to hear it continuously. Yes. Yeah, it's, and mine says, let no one disregard you. Yeah, and we'll talk about that when we get there and what that means. And there are, there might even be other translations that use different words there than that. Was there any other ones, have any other different word there? Yeah, and it's similar to what Paul told Timothy, right, when he told him not to let anyone look down on him because he's young. Right, it's a similar kind of thing there. Um, so, declare these things, he says, and we all need to keep hearing them. So it's as an ongoing sense. Um, keep on speaking, in other words, is what he's telling Titus. And then he says to exhort. And the Greek word means to call one alongside. Okay? In most of its New Testament uses, it really has the idea of urging someone. And it's usually an urging someone to take particular action. Right, to take action on something. It's an, it's an urging. They're not doing it, and you're urging them to take action, and usually to take the action prescribed for Christian, proper Christian character or behavior. Right, if someone's not doing that or they're sinning, then we would exhort someone to behave in accordance with their salvation, to behave according to the word of God. And this, too, is used in the imperative here. He is to continually exhort um, God's people with all authority. You have to remember that all authority is attached to all of these things. Um, they're all to be done with all authority. And again, this exhortation, the fact that he's to do it continually, informs us that we need it continually because we stray, we wander. Um, he says rebuke, and some of your translations might say reprove there. And this has the meaning of bringing to light. When, when this word is used for Christians, it is meant to be shining a light on or showing or convic- convincing someone of their wrong actions or words or thoughts. Uh, this is to expose them to uh, the person. When, when what is seen is unchristian, when it's sinning, we are to expose that to the person. Make it clear to them so they can see it. And then change is implied in that. Not just, hey, you're sinning. Yeah, I am. And then leave it there. Right? The implication is you need to stop. Uh, the rebuke is showing sin and calling on the person to change. Calling on the person to repent. And again, as with the others, this is done with the authority the word of God behind it. Someone else explained it this way, to, to shame or disgrace and thus to rebuke another in such a way that they are compelled to see and to admit the error of their ways, to show someone that they have done something wrong and summon them to repent. In our society, we've sort of lost the idea of shame, haven't we? We can look at what goes on around us and what is celebrated and there just seems to be no shame anymore. And for us as Christians, 
there should be a level of shame attached to sin. And so when that's pointed out to us, shame is actually a good thing in that sense. The shame should drive us to turn away, to turn back, repent, and come back to a right path. Uh, it's not pleasant, right? It's not a pleasant task for anyone to point out someone else's sin and call them to repent. Um, but it's, it's a necessity that we would do that. And Paul's next command uh, to Titus in, in this verse, I think, shows that. He says, let no one disregard you. Okay, or some say, despise you. So before we get to that, why would someone disregard or despise a pastor in the church who's declaring the word of God and it, with exhortation and rebuking where necessary? Why would someone despise that? Or why would they disregard that? Because they're living in sin. Did you say living or loving? <laughs> Same thing, maybe. <laughs> Right? They love their sin. They're living in sin. Sure. Why else might they disregard? They don't want to change. Right? And I think that gets even more to the loving of our sin. Right? We don't want to change. Yeah, we sometimes approve of the sin of others because we don't want to confront them. Perhaps because we believe that relationship would end if we confront them. We want to keep that relationship. Um, and or, or we just start believing. Whatever the sin is they're doing, we start believing that that is true because we know that person, we love that person. How could that possibly be wrong? Because this person is so close to us. So then we begin to reject what the word of God says because we feel like this has to be right because I love this person. Uh, it's a very difficult thing, but if our standard is the word of God, then that's our standard. And so we tend to disregard or despise when we are believing something else. When we're believing something besides the word of God, we would tend to despise hearing it, to, to disregard someone calling us out. And maybe it's that we're covering for embarrassment or out of pride. Um, maybe we didn't like someone's tone the way they said it. And that, that's, there's something to be said for that. We shouldn't use a, a harsh tone with somebody when we do share the truth. Maybe they're, maybe they're a Christian in name only, right? Maybe they're not truly regenerate. Therefore, they do not, they cannot submit themselves to the authority of the word of God through his messenger. We have to remember that's a possibility. If someone is totally disregarding, perhaps they're not truly a believer. And Paul says Titus is not to let anyone disregard. And the meaning in that Greek word is describing someone who 
who thinks around something. If you think about that for a second, what that means, thinking around something. The idea being that they hear what is being said and they, they think of anything they possibly can to justify not doing it, um, believing it or adhering to it, right? We want to, there's got to be some way around this biblical truth. If I think hard enough, I can find a workaround. Uh, this person wants to avoid. They want to evade. They want to disagree with the word of God and its application in their life. And it is a form of despising, right? That's why that's used, translated that way sometimes. This ultimately, yes, there is God's messenger is doing the rebuking and the exhorting with the word of God, and they may despise, disregard them. Really what they're doing is despising God's word. They don't want to hear it. They don't like it. So there is that sense there that uh, they're, they're in their disregard of it, it is actually a despising of the Word of God. They hate the Word of God for all the reasons that we mentioned, right? They, they don't want to change. They love their sin. And we don't want to be that. But he tells Titus, don't let anyone do that. Especially, don't let anyone who bears the name of brother or sister in Christ do that. Don't let them disregard the Word of God. Um, Paul is saying, basically saying here, Pastor, do your job as commanded in Scripture, according to Scripture. Don't let the people get away with not listening and not obeying the word of truth. Well, what does that look like? Or sometimes when we say things like, don't let them get away with it, <laughs> we mean physically restrain them or something like that, but you can't do that. You can't, even a pastor can't make someone do something, right? So, what does that mean then? What does it look like? Well, this is, this looks like the person who's sinning against another person maybe. And, and the word of God is declared to them. Here's what is true. Here's what the word of God says. And you exhort them to stop sinning. And you rebuke them. You expose them to their sin. Make it clear to them through the word of God. Let, let shame over sin do its work in their life. And you call on them to repent and Seek forgiveness. And if they refuse, you don't let them get away with it. You don't let them get away from it. If they bear the name brother or sister in Christ, you stay with it. We pursue them. And there's a plan for how Christians are to deal with this person. If you turn with me in Matthew 18, let's look and see what we have there. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. And this is a very common text used to explain the process of church discipline. Um, and it's a progression. Uh, it's a progression that not only every believer is and should be involved in where, where sin is, but that the pastor is to be involved in at some point. So let's look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." 
So we see that the one who refuses to listen is to be considered an unbeliever. That's what, in that context, that's what a Gentile is and a tax collector. We're talking about unbelievers. But why would this, that progression, you go through that progression and they refuse to listen, why would that be proof that someone is an unbeliever? Why do you think that is? They don't repent. Okay. Yeah, because a believer would listen. A believer would repent. A believer does not want to be sinning. We, we don't want to be sinning. The believer does not want to be out of fellowship with God, let alone with the fellowship of believers. The believer is a new creation, and now, as a new creation, has finally the capacity and desire to be obedient to the word of God. The unbeliever does not. Our condition prior to salvation is that we don't have the desire to be obedient to the word of God. And the goal in what Paul writes to Titus is, of course, to bring about restoration. Sometimes we can look at that passage in Matthew 18 and think, yeah, they're getting what comes to them, or yeah, we'll get rid of this person. Um, but is that really the goal? Is the goal really in treating them as a Gentile, as a tax collector, is that really to get rid of them? No, and we can see that it is about renewing of relationships, a renewing of a relationship with the Lord, a renewing of a relationship with other Christians. That's why verse 15 there in Matthew 18, it tells us if the person listens, you have gained them. Some translations say you have won them. Yes. It, it is a progression, and you notice that in that passage, it starts at the lowest level, right? It starts when one believer sees another believer sinning, and you go to that believer, and you point it out. And the goal is you want to win them back. You don't want them being deceived and taken off into sin. and um, You want to win them. That'd be easier to have someone else do it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's true. Even the, even the unbelieving world recognizes if you go around them to someone else, there's something wrong with that. We, we should be confronting the person. There's no need for everyone to know everything. If we see it, we can correct it. If they repent, we've won them. And they stop. It's done. They move on. It's forgiven. That's where it stays. But if they don't repent, there's a progression. Uh, and it's necessary. And this is about, again, it's about restoring wayward Christians to obedience and right relationship with their brothers and sisters in Christ and most of all, their relationship with God. And so 
Paul, through the Holy Spirit, recognizes the need to put these words in this passage of Scripture, um, in this particular spot in the text, right in the middle of many difficult commands to sinful people who will struggle with self-centeredness and will fail uh, in their relationship with others because in their flesh they don't want to abide in the Word of God. So call them back, Titus. Right? Call them back with all authority. And then he continues in chapter 3. So move into chapter 3 now. He continues in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, saying, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, just as with what came before verse 15 of chapter 2, all this that comes after is also to be done in all authority. The people must listen because this is the word of God. And when Paul tells Titus to remind the people, he means to remind them of all the things he's saying here. Everything that follows, i.e. be submissive, obedient, doing good works, not speaking evil of others, avoiding quarrels, being gentle and courteous. Now these are things Christians are already aware they should be doing. I mean, we're all aware we should be doing these things, right? I think we need to be reminded of it, though. We need to be reminded of it, I think, for at least three reasons. One is we forget. Two is we refuse. And three is we don't recognize. Right? I think we understand what forgetting and refusing means. If we're talking about why we need to be reminded of something, sometimes we forget. Sometimes in our rebellion we are refusing. Um, but why would not recognizing be a reason to be reminded? What do I mean by that, not recognizing? What's the difference between that and we forget and we refuse, but we don't recognize? Yeah, and I think, I think probably that's the one we deal with the most would be not recognizing. And I say that not meaning that we're dumb or I, I think it's just that we don't think things through sometimes. We don't realize. Sometimes we're, we're going about our lives not recognizing that the way we're talking about or treating others is sinful. Right? Sometimes we don't recognize that what we're saying or doing maybe is gossip. Um, we don't recognize that something we're doing is not submissive. Uh, we don't recognize a thing we're doing is sin because we really don't understand or grasp holiness, what holiness is. And so we maybe explain away certain things, not recognizing them as sin. We justify the things we say or the way we say them about another person or a leader because... Maybe that person really is doing something wrong, right? Maybe what they've done might be sinful, but how we're talking about it or them is a problem. Do we have a goal of exhorting and rebuking for restoration? 
or are we just grumbling and complaining and maybe even slandering? We have to be careful. Um, how easy is it to find ourselves doing this sinfully? Very easy. Um, the first century men and women had the same issues and needed the same reminders for the same reasons. They, they forget, they refuse, or, and they don't recognize. Um, can being obedient in all these areas save any one of us? We might, some people might take this list and go, if I'm just doing all these things, um, God will accept me. Well, that's not, we know that that's not how salvation comes about. Right? It's through repentance and faith in Christ. It's by the work of Christ alone that we are saved, by, by his work on the cross, through, uh, by faith, through grace. Uh, and so we know and we recognize being obedient to these things does not save us. So then, why in the world are we doing them? You think, why are we doing these things? Why are we being submissive and not being quarrelsome and all these things? They don't save us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if I ask the question, why in the world are we doing them? I think the answer is in the question. Because we're in the world. That's why we're doing them. And it goes to what you're saying. Uh, we should be doing them in obedience to Christ because it pleases God. We can, we can be obedient to these things now with our hearts of stone removed. But this also must take us back to why we're left here in the world. Right? Why, why should we, when reminded, behave according to the word of God? Because that is our function here to walk in holiness and to shine a light on Christ. That's, that's what we're doing here. And I want to turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 5. And let's be reminded. Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 13 through 16. Very familiar passage. But think of it in light of what we're talking about and that we're, we're left here. We're waiting for Christ to return. What are we doing? We're being trained. We're being obedient, yes, because it pleases Christ, but also because of what it says here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why. That's why we need to be reminded, and that's why we're being obedient to these commands that he's giving to Titus. It, it's not because it saves us. We're, as Christians, we're already saved. But this is the, the outflowing of that. The overflowing of our salvation is good works. And it shines a light, not on ourselves, but on Christ. And so that people will glorify God in heaven. Right? And so how do we do this? Well, by living like Paul tells us, Titus, to remind the people to live. Submitting to rulers and authorities. To be obedient first to God's word. Then to rulers and authorities, bosses, others who we may be subordinate to. 
um, we are submissive to them. We do this by being ready for every good work. And the things that are good works are given to us by God, all of them. Right? All, all the things that are good works are given to us by God. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't have to make them up or come up with them. God tells us what they are, and he, he provides them for us. Right? So it says to be ready for every good work. Well, what does that mean, to be ready? What do you think? What does it mean to be ready for every good work? How are we ready for every good work? Right. If God has made us for good works and and provided those good works for us or and prepared them for us beforehand, where are we going to find them? In the word of God. That's how we can be ready. We, we go find them. We go look for them. How do I know what is a good work? I go to the scriptures. And this is really talking about a constant state of readiness. right? It's not just reading a couple passages about good works and, and just stuffing that back in our minds somewhere. Not only knowing what God's, God says good works are, but being vigilant for when opportunities present themselves. Right? Um, also, this is not about being ready for readiness sake uh, as as if you recognize the opportunity and you are ready for it and then watch it go by now that's not what's being talked about the implication in readiness is that you will pounce on it right that we will act on that readiness and do the good work whatever it is but we often let good works pass us by He says we shine a light on Christ also by not speaking evil of others. What are some ways we speak evil of others? Gossip, yeah. Now this is, is talking about or speaking in such a way as to malign someone else, to, to intend them harm by what we say. By our speech. And the word that Paul used here is the same word that we get our word blaspheme from. Right? We should not be speaking in such a way as, uh, as Christians. That's not to be a part of what we do to, to speak evil of others or to malign them or to blaspheme them in, the, in a sense. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now that's a good work. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And this is hard. It's hard to keep out of our lives, isn't it? Well, let this then be a reminder to us as Christians. Let the word of God here remind us as we think about our own lives and think about our own conversations, where are we falling short? And we shine a light also by avoiding quarreling, right? What's the difference between quarreling and arguing? It, or is there a difference? Yeah. 
the word he used here for quarreling really has the meaning of without battle. Right? And the idea of quarreling is, is battling for the sake of battle because you like it. I just like quarreling with other people. Um, I'm a contentious person. That's, that's quarreling. Arguing is sometimes necessary. Um, necessary in that we, maybe we argue a point of scripture, which we know is truth, right? So we argue a point of truth against a lie that might be creeping into the church. So arguing is not the same as quarreling. Sometimes arguing is necessary. Now we can, we can argue sinfully uh, if, if we're doing it wrong, but um, if you're arguing a point of scripture to prove to someone that the, they're believing a lie, that's an, that's an argument, right? But it's not a quarrel. Quarreling is, quarreling is just sinful. It's just contention. We don't want to do that. By, by doing that, we're definitely not shining a light on Christ. We're definitely not being an example to others of what a godly person should be like. Um, we shine a light by gentleness. This is also, if we look in Galatians, we see the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness is one of those. Right? He's, he's saying in here to be gentle. Um, this has an aspect of self-control with it. Um, sometimes we're not gentle because we lack self-control. We're, we respond sinfully instead of with gentleness because we lack self-control. We, we should keep from being harsh. That's what's being talked about here with gentleness. We shouldn't be harsh. Uh, this is about extending kindness to others and being patient with them. Even if, even if we're thinking we're right about something, and that's hard. Right? This is how the scripture tells us to come to the sinning person. In Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Right? So we should... I mean, we talked earlier about confronting sin and, and trying to restore people. And it's, it is with all authority, but it is to be done in gentleness. So, just when you think you're justified in lashing out at someone's sin, slow down. Right? We want to restore that person. That's our goal, right? We want to restore that person. Um, that's our motivation. It doesn't mean we let, let sin ride let it continue but what we do is to be done in a spirit of gentleness we shine a light uh, when we are courteous towards others and Paul says this is perfect courtesy and showing it means to put it on display if I'm if I'm showing courtesy towards others I'm putting courtesy on display I'm displaying uh, a Christ-like virtue um, when others see my behavior. And what others should see from us is a constant display of courtesy. Okay, this is often translated, maybe even your translation has it as meekness towards others. Okay, um, One commentator says this about the word that Paul used there, that it describes the man whose temper is always under complete control. He knows when to be angry and when not to be angry. He patiently bears wrongs done to him 
but is ever chivalrously ready to spring to the help of others who are wronged. Again, self-control. Self-control is a big part of, of these things. These are all qualities that should mark the lives of Christians. Uh, and you and I need to be reminded often that this is true. And as Paul makes his next comments, we can see what our, what our mindset should be when we find ourselves pushing back against this reminder. Because sometimes we would push back against this. Maybe as we're being reminded of these commands and this way we should live, we're also thinking at the same time about this person that we're having a hard time with. And so I, I want to push back against this because maybe God doesn't know how annoying this person is. <laughs> right? Uh, so we need to be reminded. Well, why would we push back against it? Because we don't like doing it, considering the behavior of others. They're, they're so bad. They're, they're so irritating. They're such sinners. Not like me. But Paul says differently. He gives the lens through which we are to look at this command, and that is in verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, why would he say that? He's making a distinction here from, from our old self and our new self. But why does that have any bearing on why I should treat others the way he's saying we should treat others? There you, there you go. Right? We, we can't be so arrogant as to believe or sound like we were never like them because we were doing the same things. And he's pointing that out. And what happened? Grace. God gave us grace. He gave us mercy. He saved us, changed us. Why would we think we're better than those other people? What they need is what we have received. Yeah, and, and that's hard. And what's being described here is the difference between Christian and non-Christian, right? It says, for we ourselves once were once foolish, disobedient. So he's describing the, the foolish, disobedient, slave to various passions. All He's describing unbelievers and how we were once there, and we, do, we need to have compassion on them. This is not about like what you're talking about, which it is easier to say, well, I'm done with that person. They don't listen to me, and maybe it's been years, um, but we're not called to just let it go or ignore them. We're also not called to beat them over the head with the gospel over and over and over. When they know we've said it, they know what we believe, we've shared the gospel with them. It doesn't mean we never share it again, but we can become a clanging symbol. You know? um, at that point, what we need to do is 
is show it by the way we live our lives, by being gentle and being patient and not quarrelsome and all those things. Not compromising the truth, right? Not agreeing that or saying that sin isn't sin, but I, I do believe this is a call for us to be patient with them, to recognize that they are where we were. And what they need is they need salvation. They need the gospel, and we can pray for them. We can maintain those relationships, even if they push away, even if they don't really want to have anything to do. Let it, because, let it be because they don't want anything to do with us, not because we are abrasive or anything like that. Let it be just because they're rejecting the truth. Uh, but even in that, even in their rejection of the truth, Lord willing, we will be compassionate and kind to them and, and patient and loving. Um, and Lord willing, they will, they will come to faith in Christ through that, through that example. Uh, if, we, if we're not there, if we abandon them, um, you know, what are they left to think? That we don't care. Uh, we don't want them to think that. We do care, although, like you say, it's very hard. It's very hard to be in some relationships with people who are antagonistic, um, definitely do not believe what we believe, maybe even family members, um, but I don't think we have an excuse to abandon them in a sense and not continue to share the gospel, not continue to pursue them um, with the truth and praying that God will save them. So he has to bring this point and, and make it. Don't be so arrogant as to think you're better than other people or you're better than them, this person who maybe is acting sinfully and all that, but they're an unbeliever. What do you expect? What, what would we expect? That's how we were. So remember that and remember the grace and mercy you received, and we need to, we need to have that for other people. We can't save them, but we can point them to Christ by our words and by our actions. So we're, we're out of time for tonight. We'll stop there um, and pick up next time. We'll probably spend a little bit more time in verse 3 again just to talk a little more in depth about those things in verse 3 and then move forward from there. So let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word and this reminder. Actually, reminders, plural, Lord, in several areas. And Lord, if there are these things in our lives right now, if, if we are quarrelsome or not submitting to authorities. Um, Lord, if we're, if we're being disobedient in these areas, I pray you would expose that in our hearts. Let us know. Help us to, to behave like Christians and repent, to turn from it. Lord, help us to do better. Help us to, through your spirit, uh, be obedient to your word. May it bring, bring glory to you, and may it, may it shine a light on you so that people will, will glorify you, our Father in heaven. Um, thank you, Father, for your salvation through Christ for us. We thank you for bringing us from darkness to light, from death to life. Help us, Lord, to be compassionate on those who have not been saved, that we would not despise them or treat them poorly, but recognize that we too were once there and, and not brought out of that by any righteousness of our own, but by your grace and mercy and through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We praise you for it in his name.